The worst thing you can do to a child is shut them out. Shut them out of your love as a parent, ignore their needs, exclude them from the family, and just act like it's no big deal at all. What amazes me about some of the people in our community here who watch the videos and comment and share their stories is how they rise up with this extraordinary strength and an ability to love and live their lives. And the only thing wrong is that they carry this doubt that they did something wrong. Hey, it's Anna here, just taking a little pause to talk about getting help when you're having a rough time. There are a lot of things you can try, and one of them is online therapy through BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible, and those are very good things, because finding a therapist can be really hard. BetterHelp makes it easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist who meets your criteria. And when you click the special link that I'm going to give you, it not only helps this podcast, but it gets you 10% off your first month of therapy. So you can connect with a therapist, see what happens. And if anything feels like it's not a fit, which is common in therapy, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. No stress about insurance or who's in your network or anything like that. So if you're struggling and you need to talk to a human, try BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-C-F. C-C-F stands for Crappy Childhood Fairy. That's BetterHelp.com slash C-C-F. There's also a link in the episode description if you need it. That might be easier. Thanks for sponsoring us, BetterHelp. Now, back to the show. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Josie, and she writes, Dear Crappy Childhood Fairy, When I first imagined writing this letter, I was a teary-eyed mess, but right now I feel more clear-headed and aware of what I actually need help with. I have a tendency toward delusion and sugarcoating, so I appreciate directness and will try to be as direct and concise as I can be. All right, I've got my fairy pencil. I'm going to circle what Josie tells me here. And then I'll go back on a second reading and respond to that. But let's read through and see what Josie's got going on. For years, I thought my family hated me. I never felt like I got the amount of love I needed or wanted from them. As the oldest girl in an immigrant household, I was always expected to take care of my little brothers and sisters, and my needs and wants never mattered. For example, I remember taking my little sister to dance classes where some of the girls were my age, but taking dance classes was never an option for me. I cooked and cleaned up for them. Having a recent conversation with my brother where I explained that I hated feeling like the maid of the family, he said, no, no, you were just a big sis, which made me angrier than I could verbalize to him. I felt like part of it was the way I looked. My skin is darker and my hair is kinkier than anyone else's in the family. My parents told us it was because my mom drank colas when she was pregnant with me, and so none of us were allowed to drink colas as a kid, I guess so no one else would look like me. But I also know or think that it was part of my mom's programming. She was the oldest girl in her family and was treated poorly by my grandmother and did all the terrible things she said my grandma did to her, to me. Things like getting all her other kids nice Christmas gifts and then getting my mother nothing or celebrating their birthdays and not my mother's. My mom did this to me my entire childhood. But lucky for me, I'm great with delusion. I would save all year and get myself gifts for my birthday and bake my own cake. 
and invite everyone to celebrate with me. I would secretly wrap my own Christmas gifts and put them under the tree and pretend that other people had gotten those gifts for me. Whew. After a series of events happened, like my family renting out an event hall and throwing a surprise birthday party for my little brother without ever inviting me or telling me about it, and like my other little brother taking advantage of me while everyone in the family knew what he was doing and didn't tell me about it, I came to a conclusion that actually seems closer to reality, which is that my family doesn't hate me, they're just indifferent to me, and that hurts me a lot. I want to be loved by them, and I cannot make them love me. I have been getting better with the truth and with facing reality and creating some detachment. However, I just found something out a couple days ago that really shook me to the core, and here comes where I need advice. My mom and I were talking about the increasing cost of health insurance, and she started reminiscing on when she had great insurance when we were kids. And I told her I never got to experience that because I was never allowed on her insurance. And I repeated what she had always told me. There was a limit of people allowed on her health insurance, and so my little brothers and sisters had to be on it, and me and my brother couldn't because we're the oldest. This time around, she revealed the truth that it would have cost an additional $200 a month to have me and my brother on it, and my brother never got sick, so she didn't think it was worth it. I kept my composure and just asked, but what about me? I was a sick kid and had always been one. I had heart issues that required me to see a specialist and to take ongoing medication from age 10 until I finally stopped at age 23. She just said, well, you always just took care of yourself. I kept the conversation going, but the next day at my new job, I couldn't concentrate. Tears kept welling in my eyes and I felt myself getting sick. I took a walk and tried the techniques I've learned about finding what's going on with me because I often don't know and I broke down on my knees. I ran to the bathroom for cover, but I kept picturing teenage me scrambling to figure out how to pay for my prescriptions how I used to wait for my doctor to come out during his smoke break and beg him to write my refill prescriptions for me because I couldn't afford the office visit. When he told me one of my parents would have to come in for my next visit, I stopped going to him completely and started going to free clinics and just seeing if they would write a prescription for me. They'd think it was for some STD and tell me I needed an office visit, but when they saw it was ongoing care for my heart, they'd often just write it. I got so sick one time at school, but already had more medical bills than my $7 an hour could pay for and just told my friends and roommate to let me die. It was food poisoning and I survived, but all the memories of what not having health insurance meant for me as a child came rushing back and I found it hard to think or concentrate on, on my work. I also got physically sick. It could be a coincidence, but I've gone through this enough where I recognize what heartbreak can do to my physical well-being. Now here's where I need your advice, Anna. For the last few months, I've been in a terrible financial situation and have just finally gotten a great job where I'll make more money than I ever have. My family issues and my broken heart about it has a tendency to overwhelm me and hijack my brain. What should I do that I can keep a clear heart? and mind and do work without being overtaken by emotions over the lack of love I feel from my family and the world. I also don't have any friends or romantic interests, so I'm really starting at ground zero. Those relationships often mirror my family dynamic. How can I start to have a family of my own? 
and make friends. I'm 36 and scared that I will become irrevocably broken if I don't control how I approach life or handle heartbreak. I guess what I really need to know is how can I be less sensitive to heartbreak or have a less fragile heart? I know sound advice might be to stay away from the people who hurt you, but my family's very important to me, even if I'm not important to them. I live a thousand miles away, but I think of them often and constantly long for us to be closer emotionally. I don't think they do the things they do intentionally to hurt me, though my mom has done lots of intentional stuff to hurt me. Wait a minute. It's confusing to me. Ah, there it is. When I was moving away last time, she threw a going away party for me and invited my siblings and cousins. The only thing is she told everyone it was a surprise, but she never invited me or told me about it. So when I moved away, no one was around to see me off and no one would answer my call and I felt like I was being cast out. It's one of those memories that's really hard to believe, but I have several more stories just like that one. She told everyone that I must have forgotten. She told me, but how could I have forgotten that? Yeah. If I drank, it'd be easier to believe that she forgot to tell me and all her other excuses, like why she's never visited in seven years, but I don't like to drink when I'm sad. My mom is a sensitive spot for me because I just always really wanted a mother and my mom never had a connection to me, but I have stories about my siblings and dad too. My dad introducing me with a disclaimer that his other daughters are pretty and have light skin, or even my ex who did something humiliating to me last time. I saw him, maybe to get back at me for breaking up with him. He's pretty much the only non-family member I speak to, and he's been a good friend, or maybe not. I don't know, actually, but he's, he's there. Basically, the people who are important to me also dysregulate me with all these emotions and memories. If I can't get rid of them, is there anything I can do to maintain myself and be productive at work? I'd really appreciate your advice, Josie. <sighs> You know, I got this letter and I was like, oh, it's long. I'm going to ask this person to cut it down, but I read it. I can't really do without a word of it to understand this tender person. And I'm very moved by this. And I know you are too out there. This is really terrible. This is, this is like some things I'm familiar with. Some of it I went through as a kid, but nothing like this magnitude and this is what amazes me about you, Josie, is that you're just asking, like, how can I still keep loving them and get, get on with my life? And I, it's a beautiful question. And I know a lot of people would just be like, categorically, you cannot keep having contact. So let's, I don't know, let's break that down. You thought they hated you. You never got the love you needed. No, you did not. You were the oldest girl in an immigrant household, so you were expected to take care of everyone. I was the oldest girl. We weren't immigrants, but it was alcoholism. And I did have to take care of the younger ones. And they overlooked my needs, but that's about... <laughs> yeah, I could say parallels, but the, the, just the extremity of this is just so heartbreaking to me. And so taking your sister to dance classes and there were older girls your age there, but you didn't get to have the lessons. Nobody ever discussed that. And also, you know, by then, whatever age that was, you had already figured out like, don't even ask, don't even ask, don't, don't ask about it. It's just how it is. And then um, this thing about you believe it's partly because your skin is darker and your hair is kinkier than anyone else in the family. And I wondered about that because it came up again that your dad would introduce you as, you know, the other sisters are pretty and light-skinned and you're not. That is just so 
abusive and trying to introduce their, uh, you know, just putting self-hatred on you for your skin. I mean, when you have a little child, their skin is something you love like it's your own, you know? It's, you never want them to get hurt. You never want them to think less of themselves. So what the heck were they doing here? All right, I'm gonna float a little theory here. I don't know, you know, it's so messed up that like sometimes I wouldn't introduce something, but is it possible you have a different dad? Is that way your parents are acting like they just tolerate you, but they won't really take care of you? I don't know. It's not, it's not an excuse, but I'm just wondering, you know, if, you, if your appearance is different. So they have some kind of internalized racism, I take it. And then they said it was because your mom drank colas when she was pregnant and then nobody could drink it. Oh my gosh, you know, it could make you dark, which is just the stupidest thing I ever heard. And then, um, yeah, and I see why it hurt you. You know, we have to avoid being like your sister. And then it was part of her programming. So this was really part of the mystery is that she was treated the same way. She was overlooked. She was cast out. When you said you feel like you've been cast out, honey, you were cast out. This is like the actual thing. So supposedly your mom was cast out and now she's doing the same thing to you. Nobody who's right in the head does this to their children. I'm just saying like, even if it happened to her, it's not right. Like I had a lot of stuff happen to me and I didn't do it to my kids. The birthdays, yeah. This thing about parties, like not inviting you to your brother's party. And then at the end of your letter where you say they had a going away party for you and everybody was invited but you, like this is um, some serious malicious BS going on. And I don't, I don't diagnose people, but this, this is uh, one of the signs of narcissism, a certain kind of narcissism. And it does seem like that could be something going on where there's like no empathy at all. But what's interesting about you is your strong spirit. My goodness. So you said, lucky me, I'm great with delusion. And that's, you're just like a poster child for the rest of us to demonstrate. Yeah, that's what we do. Like we see love where there is no love. And I would have expected with this background, I was going to get a limerence letter from you. And that's not what's going on. So that's cool. But it's like you have... Uh, magical thinking about your family, about somehow, like you really want the completion of having the love of your family and especially your mother. And you're not able to um, reckon with this realistically. And so that was kind of the theme here is you had, you said, I have a tendency toward delusion and sugar coating. So yeah, but I understand that. I understand that, you know, it's called Pollyanna-ish and being a Pollyanna and Pollyanna brought a lot of positivity to some very down people. So it's an archetype that I've always loved myself. And it's a, it's a superpower that you can bring to things and then it becomes dysfunctional. It doesn't mean you can never be Pollyanna, but you have to use critical thinking. So I'm just looking at the situation with, with your family and they just sound really, really awful to you. Like they seem to have a great time together, but they are awful to you. And something is wrong with people who do that. It seems like your siblings were maybe conditioned by your mom to treat you the same way she did. That's what happens. You got black sheeped, right? Gosh, though, I'm just, I can hardly put my words together. I just feel so heavy and sad about this. I'd love to see you get free of the idea that there's something that you can do to make them love you. Clearly there's nothing you, you can do because it's not about you. It's some trip. So this is, 
I've heard that sometimes uh, narcissist parents, they will really hate on the child who has the same gender because it's competition. Yeah. So I don't know. Nothing really makes sense here. And I think the commenters might be able to, you know, suggest some something they perceive in all of this. Okay. This got me the insurance. Okay. This is where it just sort of goes surreal. So you never had insurance and you were talking about it and you thought it was because she couldn't, like there was no way she could, it wasn't allowed, but it was allowed. It's just that to have that many kids, there was going to be what's called a copay. It wasn't you personally who cost more. It was the cost of having however many kids she had. It wasn't you. <laughs> I just want to tell you that, like, it's not your fault. It was $200 or your brother's fault. It was $200 because of the number of kids and the plan covering X number of kids and not that many, which is a bummer too in its own right. But she told you she couldn't. And then she just mentioned your brother and <laughs> I'll, okay, I'll tell you a secret. This happened with my mom when she was dying, she still, she had not like lost her lucidity, but I said something about, I needed to take time off from work because I wanted to see my family. And she went, she looked at me all weird. And I said, what? She said, I just never thought of you as having a family. And that was in a way helpful to me because when they do something this crazy, then it's just clear. It's like, you're off the hook. It's nothing you did and nothing you do can change it. So what you have here is a very practical problem. Oh, this thing about the heart though, I just have to address this Josie, that she didn't insure you when you had a heart defect and that you had to go use your $7 an hour wages to get heart medication is like so far beyond the pale. I can't even believe it. I do believe you though. I do believe you. I'm not saying I don't believe you. I'm just saying, I just can't believe that somebody got away with such abuse. That's just like, what's the word for that kind of abuse? What's the word for it? It's like intentionally cruel neglect and you needed the medicine and then you go and your story, this is why I believe you, your little details of like, you know, they'd think it was an STD. They would, right? And then they're like, oh, it's heart medicine. Sure. Here you go. And then getting food poisoning and thinking you're dying and feeling that full weight of like, I don't have anybody. So I want to talk to you about that. So you're started a new job and what you're worried about is doing well is going to kick up the dust on all these feelings of loss and incompletion and the way your family has not given you the love that you deserve and want. See, I'm not going to say need you. I'm going to have to like draw the line here and say, you actually don't need their love. It's a tragedy. They didn't give it to you. You can't ever get back that time when they were supposed to give it, but you can make a wonderful life right now. And part of it, I think is just facing reality. Like we're all in this boat, right? To see the reality of our condition. When we have CBTSD, we know that we have quirky ways of seeing things and sort of self-sabotaging behaviors. And the solution is always going to begin when we can face honestly, the reality of our condition, which I think you have. Cause you say, you know, I do this delusion thing, you know, you're doing it, you know, it's a delusion, but you can't stop. And it upsets you and it leaks into your work and it sabotages your ability to do a good job. This is a quality problem, Josie. I'm proud of you for getting this far that you can be confronting this problem that basically we all have that the trauma leaks back in. It leaks back in, especially when we're doing well, it leaks back in when bad things happen and it leaks in when good things happen and you have a good thing. So this is a really good question. All right. So I want to tell you a story about from my life. So there was a time, 
Um, I had a boyfriend who died. I was a single mom. I had two kids. I was very lonely. And uh, this is the last time that I went to a therapist. It didn't end up being helpful, but I do remember something helpful that she said or something enlightening that she said. I was crying and saying, I was in the hospital 14 times for major surgery. Most of the time I had no visitors. Most of the time I had nobody to drive me home. You know, the look on the face of the nurses when they'd be like, well, can't, don't you have somebody who can come and get you? And I didn't, <laughs> certainly not after 14 times. I had a couple people who might do it once, you know, and I had to use them up. And I asked her, what's wrong with me that it's like this? And she basically just did the math for me. She's like, you don't have a mom. Your sister is not in your life. You don't have a husband anymore. And you, those are the people who would normally take, take care of you and pick you up at the hospital. And those are the people who would populate your life and spend holidays with you, Josie, and be your go-to people when you had a hard day or great news or anything like that. So we're all meant to have this cast of characters and you don't have yours. Like they're living, but they're, they don't work. They're broken. They don't give you that. And so I really want to advocate for you and say, it takes time, but you need first, you need a community of good friends. And when you grew up with trauma, like that's sometimes like feels like an impossible dream, but you can do, I have a course on how to do it. It's uh, called connection bootcamp. And there's always a link to it down below in the description section. If you want to check that out, you need friends and you need people who are in the role of family, which is usually going to be a partner. And so you say you're 36, you'd like to have a family of your own and you want to heal and you want to do that. So yeah, it's time to get a partner. And getting a partner is wake up call time because if you're still entangled with your family and still trying to get their validation and set things right with them by, I don't know, somehow like mentally or tap dancing nicely enough that they would finally go, oh, Josie's amazing, we made a mistake. Like they don't sound like people who can possibly get it or produce that. It just doesn't sound like it's coming, but there are people who can do that. I'm a person who sees it. I see the greatness of you. I think we're gonna get a chorus in the comments of people sending you love and, um, and, and validation and support and encouragement to keep going in your life. So this thing where it leaks back in, it, it's, this, it's like thoughts that creep into your mind and they intrude and they give you a huge emotional reaction and then you're all dysregulated and you can't do it. So you're like, oh, the people I love dysregulate me. Well, yeah, it's not just the dysregulation though. It's, there's, you know, it's the whole like terrible curtain that comes down on you when you are connected to those people, when you're connected in that special magical way where you want something from them and you know what's gonna happen. So just for the delusion, I'm just here to go, that thing where you think it's gonna change, it's not gonna change. You can have them in your life, many people do, but a change of perspective can make it a lot less painful where you go in knowing and you're supported by friends who are basically not, not literally holding your hand perhaps, but staying like you're texting them. All right, I'm gonna go in now. I'm gonna spend half an hour with my mom. Can I text you when I'm done? It's called bookending. And they go, yes, I'll be right here. So then you go, okay, I did it. Oh gosh, that was so intense. And they'll go, how'd it go? And you can tell them, maybe you call them, maybe you text them. 
and you start to tell the truth in real time about how this is going. Because when we can't tell the truth in real time, you know, you can't wait until maybe years from now, you'll be in the therapist's office and you can talk about this. Yeah, you can tell the truth then and, and, and the therapist will care and I care. But in real time, you kind of need to not go into denial. That's what needs to happen here because what they did to you, the pattern that happens to people, they lose their sense of self and they shut themselves down. And I, that's like a terrible thing. You don't want that to happen. I can really hear that you are in there. You are in there. You're not a shut down person. You're feeling your feelings. You're, you're very self-aware that going into this job could be a challenge for you. I think you're doing really, really well. But I just, that part where you don't have friends is where you have a vulnerability that could really lead to you just shutting down or trying to go back in. And all the psychological gymnastics you have to do to make that work, you know? The things you have to tell yourself about yourself to justify the way they treat you, the way they see you. The, they don't see you at all. So there's what friends can do is help you have a thought barrier there where it's like, I hear what they're saying. You know, I see what they're doing. It does hurt my feelings, but I know it's not true. That would empower you to be able to have some visits with them. But you really may want to look at my ninja boundaries video about that. There's a way that you can visit really difficult people, but you have to completely eliminate your expectation and that they're going to give you something better than they ever did before. It's really just about making a conscious decision that you want to pay a visit. You want to like see how they're doing or say hello or give them a present or whatever, but you have to really be self-disciplined and do your homework and prepare not to think like, if I give them a present, they'll give me a present. They're not, right? Or if they do, well, whoop-de-doo. And, and if you tell them, look, I love you, I miss you, they're gonna tell me. Again, if they do, you know, we're in a whole context here where it's simply not a supportive relationship. It's not the person that you can go to. You know, that person isn't in your family where you can just say, gosh, I'm feeling a lot of doubt about something. Can you help me figure out what's the right thing to do? They're not your people, but your people exist. If you want to come into our membership program here, we would love to have you. We are your people. We get it. And we have a lot of strategies here for when you want to have a relationship with difficult people or you haven't decided yet if you do and you need time to test the waters and kind of see what you can handle and to be honest with other people when you say oh yeah i can handle this it's fine like when you're honest with other people it's easier to acknowledge things that you can't handle things that are too much when you have to take a break so so it's 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 just a very positive thing and you get to watch how other people how they handle their difficult family relationships. I mean, we have some doozies here. Yours makes me so sad. It's so wrong. It's just so wrong. Something is so wrong with your mom and how she kind of brainwashed the family about you. So I do favor you having lots and lots of space from them and hanging out with people who think you're great so that you can start to reprogram yourself, get out of the brainwashing. You know, you're not this terrible person who deserves it. And you also don't have to live in fantasy to get every little bit of happiness you ever have. You can have that in the real world. You sound lovely. You sound caring and compassionate and great things are in you. When somebody lives through something like this and has the insight that you're demonstrating about knowing that it's hard for you to accept reality and, you know, struggling with good questions of, you know, how do I make sure I show up for my job? I just have so much confidence in you, Josie. I, I, I have a good feeling about you that 
as you begin to practice setting this inner boundary and the boundary there's there's boundaries in between like all in and all out you can have medium boundaries and you can move the boundary as needed it's so good though when you have a boundary advocate friend you know who's there to kind of think this through with and help you stay real with yourself and not go into the la la land where it's like it's okay i can tolerate any amount of abuse it's okay no it's fine like you don't want to let yourself do that and so what's happening to you now is you have pain you have more crying you have more anxiety about it and i think that's normal it's normal when as we begin to face what really happened there's going to be more feelings and there's that wisdom of our beings you know our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our souls they kind of know it's like, oh, are we are we going to get some support now to look at this? Because I would like to tell you something when people do my daily practice technique, which, by the way, you might like that. It's a free course. Anybody can take it. It's a specific writing technique followed by a meditation technique. And I don't know, you mentioned writing a meditation. So I think you know something about it or maybe you have your own version. But it's what I started using 30 years ago and what helped me get out of, you know, just complete entrapment in my trauma driven thinking and behavior got me a you know a window open with fresh air and then a door and then I was out I was out and um and it's still I still do it twice a day because that's the nature of CPTSD is it kind of creeps back in and so you can support yourself and I just encourage you like embrace the fact that those of us who went through something as hard as you did it's it's a maintenance thing we have to maintain it it didn't you know something did get injured and there's so much of it we can heal and some of it, you might get like an insight that will permanently help you with something, but a lot of it is just maintenance to kind of keep yourself in a good, aware, regulated, supported space. That is so much of the object of the game. It's why isolation is just terrible for people who are going through what you're going through. So that is what I recommend you make your priority, not your family. You can figure that out later, but friendships, friendships. One thing you could try is a 12 step group too. And that's definitely what I did. I was at that alone place. I didn't know who to turn to. And I started going to meetings and um, you would qualify for the adult children of alcoholics and other dysfunctional families, um, 12 step fellowship. And it's pretty neat. And uh, I encourage you to check it out. You can look it up online and there's meetings in person and online. And a lot of people who are, you know, there to connect with you when you, if you feel like you want to check that out. So, I always say the same thing when people are trying to make a big change like you are, you need tools that work for you and you need support of people who get you. So you can find that here, 12 step programs, perhaps you'll find it in some group out there with a therapist, but don't, don't just let this go. Like just promise yourself, you're going to take this step to support yourself, to make this transition into the world and this wonderful job and congratulations on landing a good job. Well done. There's a thing you might be doing that makes it very, hard to heal from past trauma. And it's when you're thinking and eating and breathing this damaged idea of yourself. Even though you're not conscious you're doing it, you're signaling to people your low self-esteem. That hurts your ability to have positive relationships and that in turn makes it harder to heal. You've maybe noticed that this is when your childhood PTSD symptoms are up again. It's as if you have a dark cloud around you that people can feel and it pushes them away. There's this weird thing that can happen when abuse and neglect from your childhood are hanging around you like a cloak, not a very nice cloak. And it holds you down. It weighs you down. It pushes your head down. 
and I call it the underdog effect. It's like an identity. It's an energy that can block your ability to connect with people and it can stop your healing right when you need it the most. So some people call this dark cloud, a, it's a vibe, a feeling, bad energy, but a simple way of describing the underdog effect is a set of nonverbal signals that you communicate to other people just by being you. And whether you mean to or not, you're telling people about your inner state. We all have a nervous system, and whether we are consciously aware of it or not, we read and feel each other's emotional state through our own nervous system and through nonverbal cues. And when I'm feeling low self-esteem, I usually would rather hide it, but people are going to sense it. Have you had this happen? When you're trying to say everything's fine and people keep asking you, are you okay, are you okay? Because even though you have a huge smile and you're saying cheerful things, people can tell you're about to cry. Ah, it's embarrassing sometimes. And in a way it's good that people are connected like that. They can tell when you feel shame or when you feel like you don't belong or like everyone's against you. When you feel this bad, but you wanna hide it, it's a huge conflict inside. We all know what that's like. They don't have to read our minds because we're showing that with our words, our facial expressions, the way we dress, our posture, right? The way we respond to things or don't respond. People can sense it. And by the way, you can sense this in animals too. Like, have you ever met a dog who was abused in the past and when you go, hey doggy, come over here, how's it going? And the dog thinks that they're in trouble and they, they, their head goes down and they tremble. Well, we do the human equivalent of that. We think, oh, I think I must have done something inappropriate and I'm ashamed. And we're like broadcasting that to everybody. When I used to do that, I'd be ashamed for being ashamed even. <laughs> and I'd try to cover it by acting tough or cocky or funny or just, I don't know, focusing on myself too much, blabbing, driving people away. So childhood PTSD is so hard <laughs> because when you're lonely, it makes you lonelier. And when you're having a hard time, it makes everything harder. It's a downward spiral sometimes. Have you felt it? Hello, I'm the underdog. So what do you do to stop playing that role of, of the shame person? I'm gonna show you how to make it stop so that you can get back on your feet and connect with people again and start taking positive actions again toward your healing. So first, let's look at what's generating that dark cloud. It begins with harsh events in your life that maybe started in childhood things like neglect or abuse that came from the people you trusted. Now, most of us had some good experiences too, but if the bad stuff is big enough, it can get stuck in your self-concept, who you understand yourself to be. And this can carry on for years or decades past the original hurt. You get so used to it, you don't even know you're doing it. And it, it doesn't stop there. The unhealed wounds of the past can push you along into more wounding. Past trauma creates present day trauma. That's how it works. And soon, even though you're trying hard and you'd never want to make things worse for yourself, you're bringing more problems into your life. Problem people, problem situations. The problems go from existing in our outer circumstances to getting internalized and becoming part of the personality, part of our experience. Now for some people, this is permanent, which is terrible. But I'm here to tell you that the wounds of past trauma really can be healed. 
and it might take a lot of focus and self-mastery, but when you can face the part of the problem that you're, you've internalized, this is a great day because this is the part, not your parents, not their failure to ever recognize what they did or apologize to. It's not anything in the past. It's you right now. That's the part where there is the potential for change. Now, if you think you can't change until someone else changes, there are plenty of YouTube channels out there that will nurture that idea for you. Here, we're all about that change within. Even when you haven't started yet, or the change that you managed to make today is so small that you're embarrassed to tell anyone. But this is how you lose that low self-esteem. You take back your power from whatever happened to you, and you start to change the things that are right in front of you. It's astonishing how much you can heal your self-esteem by changing the problems in your life right now. This usually happens not in big grand transformations, but in a lot of little small steps taken over time. So how do you get there? How do you get free? If you could look back in time and see perfectly clearly, you'd see three things going on where you took on that role of underdog. And it's a combination of bad habits, faulty decisions, and distorted perceptions, all right? So habits, habits, decisions, and perceptions. You never chose to be this way. These are just common side effects of early trauma. And they came originally from your experiences like being neglected and judged and invalidated, ignored, stigmatized, bullied, or abused. These are real wounds and it wasn't your fault, but now it's internalized. So here's how you change. Not by going back in time, not by trying to get an apology from the people who hurt you. That could happen, but even if they apologized, even if the world totally changed so that these hurts never again happen to another kid, I mean, that would be great, but you would still have the habits and you would still have the faulty decisions and the difficulties with clear perception that you have right now. So that's what I mean when I say this is an inside job. Other people don't actually hold the key to healing your self-esteem. They can influence you, but you hold the key. You hold the key. Now, other people did harmful things, but now you're the one healing your self-esteem. It seems like the people who hurt you should do it. I know, I agree, but that's a dead end and you can't afford to wait for that. You get to move forward powerfully with your healing and take your focus inward. Was there a point where you didn't know how to set a boundary or maybe you hurt someone or was there a time when you let yourself down? That's why we take the focus inward. It's a noble and holy thing to do, this self-searching, to see if there's a part that we're ready to change. And I know in the kind of families we all came from, we didn't always get taught how to change our habits and improve our decisions and our perceptions, but we figured it out <laughs> and I'm gonna teach you now. So just to keep things simple, let's take the example of being late for work all the time. That's a bad habit, and if it's happening consistently, it's no accident. It's a decision that's causing that. And assuming you wanna have this job, it's a faulty decision, on, or a whole series of faulty decisions to not get up on time, to leave all the work of getting ready until the last minute, or to just to let yourself get distracted, whatever the reason is. Now, probably the reason is dysregulation, <laughs> I know that, which is normal for those of us with CPTSD. But if I tend to get dysregulated when I'm hurrying, then anything I do that predictably risks that I will be late is a faulty decision. 
Why would I do that? Why would I sabotage myself like that? I want to be on time. I want to stay regulated. I want to keep my job. So we know from recent research that people who had trauma in childhood are often challenged to predict the risk involved in bad decisions. Neurologically, stress can bring on a temporary dimming of the ability to gauge the consequences. Um, you miscalculate the time it takes to get to work. You can literally see this on an MRI. That's why I'm gesturing up here. You can see it on an MRI when a person with childhood trauma is stressed. The left front cortex has less activity and that's where reasoning happens. And the right front cortex, which is where emotions happen, gets more active. So we wake up, we feel hurried, that's stressful. And then oops, our perception distorts and we make a faulty decision about when to leave the house. And then we're late, which brings on more stress. And you guessed it, the negative cycle starts again. Distorted perception, faulty decision, bad habit. So if you have that, your distorted perception can make it hard to see what is something that's just happening to you versus a problem that you're actually bringing on yourself. So instead of adjusting how you do things, you might rage at traffic or resent your boss or feel really judged by the other people who give you a dirty look when you walk in late. So however it plays out, the end result is that you feel bad about yourself. That's how it happens. That feeling of low self-esteem with maybe some distrust of other people and some confusion mixed in. That's the underdog effect. That's what makes us doubt ourselves. That's how we generate that cloud around us that feels negative to other people. So how do we change it? It's hard to control your brain functions, but it's relatively easy to work on the actions you take, the behaviors that make you feel bad about yourself. Everybody with CPTSD does better when they learn to notice when they're dysregulated and take steps to re-regulate. When negative emotions have hold of you, rather than trying to fix the emotions, if you focus on just getting re-regulated, the emotions will often come back down by themselves. So you want to keep both sides of your brain, the reasoning and the feeling, you know, even running in harmony so that you can know what you're feeling and care about other people and still make rational decisions. And like everyone else, we need to keep working on our habits a little bit better every day. That's how it goes. This may sound like a lot of work, but it's happy work with immediate payoffs. And it's a heck of a lot easier than staying stuck in trauma symptoms or trying to change other people, right? So listen, it's not your fault that you have childhood PTSD. The great news is healing is possible and you can do this. You get to ask for help and you get to decide what works for you. And that's how you come to feel good about yourself and grow your self-esteem to a level that it's unmistakable to the outside world. Tyrannical parents have this terrible way of invalidating you as a kid and then leaving you unable to validate yourself long after you've grown up and away from them. Some people will become angry and tyrannical themselves. Some people suppress all that, still stuck in their conditioning that if they're just nice and helpful enough, people will love and respect them and they'll be safe. But if you tend to people please and walk on eggshells for others, you've probably noticed that the love and respect from people that you're trying to get is not what you get. Instead, even though it feels like it's going to bring trouble, what's needed is to start bringing forth your real self. My letter today is from someone I'll call Jimmy, and he writes, Hi Anna, my father came from an abusive household and then went to Vietnam. 
He has PTSD from both these experiences. I've got my fairy pencil. I'm going to circle things that I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's read through and see what Jimmy's got going on. Okay. The most present symptom of his war-related disorder is his startle response. He could turn from okay to distraught at the drop of a hat, literally. There are a few episodes vivid in my memory when my sister and I were just terrified. In general, he ran hot, anger and dismissal being his usual response to most things. Tantrums were and still are frequent. I couldn't even have a conversation with him. I still can't. On top of just being scary and unpredictable, he would also invalidate my thoughts and feelings. Almost every time, and would even go as far as to insult me, criticize me, one time announcing to the family while at dinner that I, his 15-year-old son, should have been born a girl. I've shared this with friends while laughing, trying to make light of it, but as I type this now, I'm tearing up sad for the young man at the dinner table who felt ashamed and unsupported, afraid to be himself, afraid to express himself. I think that might be the center of the problem here. It continued into my 20s and it's still a thing today. Luckily, I only see my parents maybe once a year now. My father finally admitted a couple years ago that he just can't do family. Good for him. My mother suffered depression somewhere along the way in all of this. I remember how sad she was, how overwhelmed she was, just tired, fed up. For a couple years there, they were fighting a lot, yelling. My mom left him for about a month when I was 12 and the world turned upside down for my sister and me. I'm 37, I have never married but have had many romantic relationships. A few of them lasting a couple of years and a bunch of them just a couple of months. I don't think I've ever taken it slow when first meeting someone. I immediately latch onto them when they give me a dose of love, affection, validation, companionship. I stopped drinking three months ago, but I had been drinking since I was a teenager. With the exception of a month during 2020 after a, a, a it says OUI, but I think that I call that a DUI, dr driving while intoxicated. I've drank almost every night since I was 21. As I venture into sobriety, my childhood trauma is becoming harder to ignore, harder to live with. Yep, that's right. I have made my, the best use of my people-pleasing and eggshell-walking talents. I'm an entertainer, a musician, and I started my own house painting business several years ago that has proven successful, though has been overwhelmingly stressful. I can't tell if my drinking has helped with the stress or made it worse. <laughs> Putting other people's problems on my plate seems to be my calling in life. Sarcasm, I take it. Making their problems go away and becoming their hero is my chosen path to achieving happiness, and I'm realizing how unsustainable it is. I've always thought I was patient and understanding. During a rough mental health patch, a while back I attended a weekly men's support group where we practiced good listening, compassion, empathy. I felt good about it. I felt ready to be a better partner, be a better friend. I think I am. I like that group. I struggle with anger issues of my own. It's pretty bad. I've managed not to let it rear its head in romantic relationships, and I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm writing to you because of my most recent romantic relationship. This young woman who now I am convinced is on the autistic spectrum came into the picture this year 
and has taken me for a hot, cold, tumultuous ride down Lover's Lane, and I'm left frustrated, alone, and unhappy with myself after her most recent exit from my life. I had my sights set on this woman since first noticing her at a show a couple years ago. Slowly chipping away at getting to know her, getting her to let me into her life, and finally dating her has been a process, but I did it, and now I wish I hadn't, except she did help me stop drinking, and the intimacy between her and I in the memory is one for the books. <laughs> Your videos inform me of limerence. I feel now I could have possibly made up an entire relationship in my mind that wasn't really there. Interesting. A connection based on hope. No doubt an insecure, anxious attachment. This girlfriend told me she couldn't trust me. If there was something she was doing that bothered me, I wouldn't say anything until much later. I'm guilty of this because of course I'm afraid that if I bring it up, the relationship could possibly end and then the world ends with it. I can't tell her if her default general dissatisfied attitude is in part due to her autism or if it's because of me. She's always been really blunt, brutally honest, and terribly insensitive. I want nothing more than to help her. Ooh, what a juxtaposition. We'll come back to that. I want to be the one who helps her, which is a problem in itself, much bigger than I could have imagined. Though she's abrasive and hard to read, I really adore her. I wish I didn't. Maybe I don't. I don't know how I feel. She drives me crazy. I'm upset with myself for letting myself be treated poorly and for sticking around, waiting for crumbs, as you put it, savoring each juicy little morsel, creating a false sense of security around them. Maybe she's right for not trusting me. In an attempt to move on, I'm going on dates with new people, probably a little early. I'm so desperate to get her out of my mind that I'm willing to tiptoe cautiously into someone else's life. Is that wrong? Should I sit with sadness, my prolonged grief for a little longer? I want long-term love. I want to give it and to receive it. I don't want to keep going from one woman to the next. As an alternative, I'd at least like to be happy on my own, which I'm definitely not. I'd like to not feel like there's something missing. Yes. I'm having a hard time letting go of my ex, and I don't know why. I know she's not a great fit for me, but it kills me that I can't be the one. Yeah. I'm already jealous of whoever she dates next. My codependency is so blatantly obvious and I'm embarrassed, ashamed, down. This is not the man I want to be. Some years ago, I remember being in the pits of depression around a similar relationship that had ended. And I had reached out to my parents. Yes, it was that bad, he says. I was 30, a heavy smoker, heavy drinker, heartbroken, lost explaining to my mom how unhappy I was. She didn't know what to say. My dad grabbed the phone and butted in. You want to talk depression? Jesus, don't let a woman get you down. You don't know what love is. You're right, dad. I don't. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Anna. And that's from Jimmy. Oh gosh, I'm very moved by your letter. Um, let's go through what you told me. <clears throat> I do get a feel for what's going on here. All right. Father came from abuse, went to Vietnam, had PTSD, was angry, couldn't do family, and just invalidated the crap out of you. Why he did that, who knows? We could pick it apart, but the fact is it happened. And so you described yourself 
You're sad for the young man at the dinner table who felt ashamed, unsupported, afraid to be himself, and afraid to express himself. And I would just say, the first time I read your letter, before I read it aloud here, when I was just like reading letters to pick some that I would read, I thought, that's kind of what it is, how you get in relationships. Maybe it's always that with all of us. But I just, I think you're a good writer. I think you have a lot of self-awareness. There's a lot of places where you say, I don't know how I feel. Maybe I've got this all wrong. But that's self-awareness too, to just start to sort of notice where you have a, a fuzzy thinking area. Ashamed, unsupported, afraid to be yourself, afraid to express yourself. And uh, what's cool about this is those four words kind of point to the opposite of what your healing is going to involve is going to be freeing yourself of shame so that you feel good finding support so that you feel supported, feeling confident to be yourself because you like who you are and you don't worry that some dark side of yourself is gonna come out and ruin everything, and free to express yourself because what you want and how you feel is now respected by you as worth expressing. You are so right that in bad relationships, expressing yourself and saying how you feel could make the whole thing go away. And that's the whole thing about walking on eggshells that we do. Like we're trying to hold a relationship together artificially by hiding how we feel and who we are. And I thought it was very interesting that this woman said she didn't trust you because you would blow up later about stuff. You didn't say anything bothered you. And that makes total sense because in a strictest sense, you're just not honest. You know, you're laying traps for somebody. So that's really good input that, that she gave you there. For you to be trustworthy, you need to be more open about how you feel about things, including when it bothers you. When you love somebody, when you're mad at them, like you get to express that. And if you're mad at somebody all the time and they don't wanna deal with it, then it's not a good match. I do think that especially after you, you will have worked on yourself, there's enough, there's so much goodness in there. You know, somebody, somebody good and cool and nice and who loves you will be there and you're not going to have to pussyfoot around. They're going to be really glad you love them and you feeling that for them and expressing it or you being disappointed. Like somebody who's into you, if you're disappointed and you express it, they're there to talk that through and sort of see what's up with that and see if you guys can get to the truth together and resolve it. That's what somebody who's into you does. And I just want you to like plant the seed that you deserve that, you deserve a good relationship. And the word deserve is tricky because just because we deserve, we deserve things because we're beautiful, dear, you know, people. We're human, we deserve it for that. But sometimes we're not getting it because we're self-sabotaging. So sometimes I think people bypass that by going, I deserve something better, which you didn't, but often we do and I do. And I've tended to take deserve out of my vocabulary because it's, it's just something we do sometimes to elevate ourselves over the aspect of ourselves that is creating a problem, right? But I deserve better. It's not untrue, but you know what I'm saying. All right. So you're 37, never married, lots of relationships, couple years, couple months, and you, you really want the real one now. So I like that about you. That's a good thing to want. That's a, that's a healed desire. I like it. And um, you stopped drinking three months ago. Congratulations, I'm sorry, that's huge. That might be the most significant thing here. It's totally normal for people who had a rageful dad to drink. And um, it sounds like it got to be a problem. You'd been drinking since you were a teenager and you drank almost every night since you were 21. 
And now that you're not drinking, your childhood trauma is coming up. And you know what? That is great news. It's great news if you support yourself with tools that help you handle the emotions that are happening. So some people do that in therapy. I love this men's group you went to, like it worked for you. I love that. I wonder if you could go back, right? Um, if you can't go to that, I wonder if you could go to a, well, AA. <laughs> if you drink and you want to stop, there's AA and there's a lot of support there. And as people will tell, you know, some people who don't like it will be like, oh, they focus on God or oh, people will hit on you and all of the above. But you get to be you and the 12 step program is a way it's a it's a path towards facing what the problem really is and trying to be better. And that's totally where you are. It's a noble and holy place that you are. And I hope you will support yourself, you know, royally with people and a path that will help you. You might have to, you know, test some things out for a while if you don't know what that is, you know, try those meetings. Um, you know, there's so many things that I've tried in my life, different um, therapies, approaches to healing groups, athletics, uh, books, 12-step uh, fellowships. You know, I've tried all these different things, churches, rejecting church. I've tried everything. And trying is legitimate. Trying is legitimate to go and kind of feel like, when does it resonate with this thing you're looking for? And it gets you closer to becoming who you really are. It just does. This is so good. We have to, you know, like to heal, we have to get free enough, unrestricted enough that we can go out there and try things, try dating people, try breaking up with people, you know, try different things. So you've tried drinking now, you're trying sobriety. I think sobriety sounds like a great idea just from what you're saying from the programming here and also that you have a lot of anger and you're like, I haven't brought it on the relationship yet, but it sounds like it's, sounds like it's brewing, right? I mean, who gets through a traumatic childhood without anger and who doesn't screw up their relationships with that anger? So you have a chance now, you're single, you have a chance to get out there and face your anger and find a healthier way to deal with it. And all of the suggestions I've given you, they're very good. Also, gosh, my membership program, gosh, come be with us. You can do the daily practice. You can take my courses. You know, we have a way to process emotions and support each other. That's totally what we have here. So definitely want to mention that, <laughs> not sell it short. It's the thing I believe in most. I created it because it's, it's the path that helped me. So, you know, we'd be very happy to have you. And so let's see, you thought you were patient and understanding. Actually, I bet you are. I bet you are patient and understanding and people are complicated and you're angry and you're difficult and you're a little limerent sometimes and you walk on eggshells sometimes and just all of it. It's okay to be complicated. When we're healing, what we're doing is we're shifting a little bit from the negative aspects of our complicated nature, strengthening up the positive ones. Everybody has positive and negative. We're born like that. And we're all sort of like, you know, working out, fighting that battle of, of the good part of us to try to help it win, to try to help it overcome the part of us that's, you know, mean-spirited, lazy, procrastinates, you know, puts people down, whatever, whatever your things are. We're all working on ourselves with that. And it's a good thing to do. It's totally positive. And when you're starting to feel like really sick of yourself, like when you describe this, that's um, in the 12-step world, that's kind of what I would call the six-step place where you're just like, we're entirely ready to have God remove our defects of character. Entirely ready. Like I am so sick of how I get and the pattern I'm repeating. And when I've been in that place, I think everything's terrible, but I look back and I'm like, everything 
just turned. The page turns to a wonderful place. When you get to that and you act on it, you're just like, that's it. I'm willing to take action for this to go differently. So you're doing that. I love that you're doing that. All right, so there's this woman. You say you're convinced she's autistic. Maybe, I don't know. Um, maybe, I just ask a little bit. You didn't tell me anything that was very persuasive about that, but you could be right. And But it didn't come from her and it didn't come from a, you know, a neurodevelopmental evaluator, you know, I don't know, but, but here's the thing. She just was kind of mean to you. She wasn't very warm or kind and it hurt you all the time. And you worked really hard to have her. And sometimes, like sometimes people just do that. We like to chase a little bit. And then if our parents didn't validate us, we'll go all the way to Timbuktu, you know, chasing somebody, even though they're not treating us very well. So eh, that's what we do. In my dating course, you could learn, you know, if you get into the membership, you have access to all my courses. In the dating course, there's a lot of material there about how to really define what it is you want and decide where is it? Are you gonna really go the extra mile to make it work out? And when are you just gonna go, oh, someone isn't kind to me. Someone constantly makes, you know, hurts my feelings and doesn't call me back. No, that's on my list is like, no, that's not gonna work for me. That wouldn't work for a lot of people. Um, but we fit ourselves to it because, because love is scarce. And, you know, that's how we feel about it. But love will remain scarce so long as you keep fitting yourselves to crap someone who doesn't love you. And you know, love is not just a thing people say, it's a verb. It's where they do show up for you. They do return your phone call. They do care about how things affect you. So you didn't have that. And you have, yes, insecure, anxious attachment. Welcome to crappy childhood, fairy. No problem there. You get, to, you get to be with us. There's so much we can do to overcome the limitation of that, to find partners who can meet us halfway on it, who accept that about us. And you know, it's, it's okay. It's how it goes. It's why we're here. Some people have said, I think this whole channel is about anxious attachment and that, that maybe so, that could be true. But you know, we look at it from a lot of angles. We look at it through the nitty gritty of daily life and not just how we attach to partners. We, we look at all of it. Okay, so yeah, if the relationship ended, you felt the world ends with it. There's a word for that and it is abandonment melange. And Pete Walker defined it. You might want to read his book, CPTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. And he talks about abandonment melange. And the first time I read it, I was just like, that's exactly what I've had basically since I was 12. I was literally abandoned when I was a kid. And then I was emotionally abandoned again and again as a kid, as a teenager, and as an adult in relationships. It tends to be a repeating cycle, doesn't it? And so I have this reaction to abandonment that can be really vicious. It's worse than what it's worse than what normal people go through. I became aware of that. You know, it was like the end of the world. It would just feel so bad. And I want you to know about that concept because sometimes if you can name it and go, oh, I'm having abandonment melange, you know, when it's like, this is so bad, I'm, the world is ending. It's like, ah, that's abandonment melange. It's a thing, it's not really happening. The world is not really ending. What's happening is a relationship that's not very good is settling into its natural shape, which is not together. And in the long run, it will make total sense that it didn't work out. Very rarely do we end up you know, hooked on somebody who was terrible for us, for real in the long run. 
if you're if you're limerent and serially limerent, you do it again and again, probably what would happen is you'd get limerent about the next person and forget about this one. Or they'd have this little place in your heart, but you know, it softens. It's not this is not the nutritious, lovely love that you need. It's it's your chain getting yanked by your own attachment wounds. Somebody comes in close, they pull away, and it's like I always, I always think of that when they have a bull with a ring in its nose and you can yank it and the bull will do anything you say. And that's how it feels sometimes when your attachment wound is just like driving you to hang on to something that feels miserable. So it's okay. Said so she's blunt, brutally honest, and terribly insensitive. I wonder if people have said that about me, but it's not nice for you. Um, but here's what's interesting. So you said she's really blunt, brutally honest, and terribly insensitive. I want nothing more than to help her. Okay, there's the codependence. She's insensitive, therefore you want to help her. Yeah, see that little twist that your mind just made there? Not like, I want to protect myself. I would rather be with somebody who was sensitive and gave a darn about my feelings. Your mind doesn't go there. It's like, I know, I'll help her. And the fantasy is that we can change them. So we go in, we're just, we're like searching the horizon. Is there anything that I could construe as a brokenness about them that I could help them with and then they would love me the way I want to be loved? And does it ever work out that way? It doesn't. So codependence, you'll, you maybe have heard some of my content about that. I make videos about it. I've done a webinar about it. And I, I just think it's one of the most difficult things you can have. People don't really realize that. They're like, oh, I'm a little bit codependent. Codependence will suck the soul out of you. It'll, it'll leave you alone and broke for the rest of your life. So you don't want to do that. It's so important to become your full and real self. It's so important to express yourself so that you are no longer suppressing who you really are. You know, going, I'm not angry. I don't need anything. <laughs> who believes that guy? You know, it, it creates a weird energy. And the only people who can tolerate it, see, perhaps this woman is autistic and sometimes autistic people, um, because of what they, the cues they read and the cues they don't read, they can tolerate that kind of thing. You know who I would go for is people who are high all the time. They, they, they don't notice either that you're being grabby and intense on them. They don't really mind. They're very relaxing to be around, but boy, do they break your heart. You're just really confused about what it all means and that makes sense. But what it means is it sucks. <laughs> if your relationship feels terrible to be in, it's not a good relationship. And so, you know, we sometimes go through all these mental gymnastics to try to understand, but why are they this way? And what could I have changed about myself? But in the end, if it's miserable for you, it's just miserable for you. Now it's true that some people could be acting on their trauma. You, for example, so much that a perfectly good relationship, you know, you just could never be happy. But I would just say, well, that's where you are now. And losing that relationship might be necessary to face what's really going on. There's so much to face. This, what you told me about your dad, there's so much to face there. And you've been drinking it away. You've been chasing women to make it go away. You know, putting your hope in something that was, that was always going to make life a little, a little nicer, a little warmer, a little more convivial, but it's not going to fix you not going to fix the thing, you know, that's, that's not what's coming. So it's good. It's good to be single and it's good to be sober. That's a really good place actually to be doing the work to figure, figure your, I say figure out. I don't think it's very intellectual face to face what the pain is to face 
what it is that you've done in your life that maybe was self-sabotaging. Like it's delicious to face that stuff when you're using tools that you like and appreciate. And when you're with companions who are doing it or have done it, who are totally supportive that you're working that path too. So I really encourage you. I just think you're doing a lot of good things here. Right now you're ashamed and down and not the man you want to be, but I think that's your fuel. That's the way that you feel that way is very connected to who you can be. You're, you're like this close to seeing what it is that you're trying to get free of and facing it really, facing it really, taking stock of it, acting on it. You can do that. I did it and I cannot recommend it enough. So you had said, oh, this thing. Okay. You left us with this thing. You were 30, a heavy smoker, heavy drinker, heartbroken, lost. You called your parents because you thought they would be like, ah, oh, Jimmy, it's going to be okay. We love you. We know you're a good guy. But they didn't. Your mom was just like, I don't know. <laughs> what was it that she did? And she didn't know what to say. She didn't know what to say. Okay. She didn't know. So yeah, I know what you say. You're just like, that is so hard. You're in a hard place. You know, we love you. We stand by you. I guess I've been saying it in this letter, right? I'm saying it on behalf of the whole community here, the commenters, we love you and we stand by you. We want you to have what you want and need, and we think you can have it. So, um, but your dad, you want to talk about depression? Jesus, don't let a woman get you down. You don't know what love is. <laughs> that could be the line in a play. I think you're a good writer. You're a vivid writer. And I appreciate that. Um, so you, you shall know what love is. May you, may you find it and start growing in your knowledge of what love is starting now so that for the rest of your life, you can deepen that knowledge. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs in the episode description below or on my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com. If you're going through a hard time and you need online therapy, I encourage you to check out BetterHelp. They're easy and affordable and they can connect you with someone you choose within a few days. And if you use this special URL, you not only help this channel, but you get 10% off your first month of therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash ccf, as in crappy childhood fairy. That's betterhelp.com slash ccf. And remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.